Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me take a moment and pray. Lord God, as Paul prayed here, as he reflected on his prayers for the saints in Philippi, we pray the same thing, Lord, that our love would grow more and more for you, for each other, for the world. But that that, but that, that love would be characterized with discernment and with knowledge and with excellence. I pray, God, that you would strengthen me, that my words this morning would honor you, would reflect your word, and strengthen us towards unity as a church. In your son's name, amen. Well, we are in our fifth week of our series on the book of Philippians. Philippians is all about um, getting the church to be at a place where they are one-minded, full partners with Paul, in the, in the progress of the gospel. And we really see um, in chapter 1, verse 27, really a kind of the, the, uh, one of the clearest places in all of Scripture where he gives us um, a clear statement of what, our, of what our mission is. He says, whether I come or remain absent, I want you to um, remain as one man with one mind in one spirit for the progress of the gospel. And so what does it mean to be a church that's standing firm as one man with one mind in one spirit for the progress of the gospel? That's what the book of Philippians is all about. Um, this, this last week, you know, speaking of, our, of, the, of the forum discussion that we're going to have on Thursday night around gender, identity, and sexuality, um, this last week I, I'm on the, uh, the board of our high school's uh, performance art, performing arts booster club. So we raise a lot of money every year to buy you know, sheet music and instruments and all these kinds of things that our performing arts programs need in our high schools. And so I was meeting with, with the, the group this week, and they know I'm a pastor. And um, it, for some reason, they just started launching into me about all of these questions. Uh, you know, what kind of church we were and, and types of things that we did and why was I in Mozambique a couple weeks ago and, and all of these things. 
And, um, and then she asked me about another church in town that's in the Northeast. It's called uh, Mill City Church, and it's a church that, that she works with um, in another nonprofit, uh, the Sheridan Project, I believe it's called. Um, and it's, uh, it's a project that helps uh, provide uh, meals for kids that are living in poverty. Uh, it's a good program. Um, and so but they work with another church. And then just, she said, you know, but, but before we started working with them, I needed to make sure they weren't haters, you know. And so then she starts just ex- going into what she meant by that. And, and it was all around um, this understanding of, of gender and sexuality and homosexuality and where they as a church. And so she like went through this big interview process with them as a church to make sure that um, she could work with them as a church. And I, don't, I have no idea how they answered any of her questions or anything like that. Um, but then I'm, I'm, so I'm just sitting there. <laughs> you know, we have these, these conversations with people, right, that are kind of progressive, and um, you wonder when you're going to be asked the big questions. Well, where do you guys stand on homosexuality? Where do you guys stand on, on gender identity? Um, you know, my big question is always, uh, what do you believe about Jesus? <laughs> so you're always just wondering when in your relationships... Um, you're going to start having those kinds of conversations. And then you always are wondering, at least maybe I do, uh, how exactly am I going to answer all of those questions, right? Because we know that eventually, if we are following Jesus, and we are, I mean, the scriptures affirm and assume, um, you know, there's no command in the New Testament to the entire church. I mean, we have commands to, the, to the, Peter and the apostles, and there's some obligation and responsibility that we have because we are kind of lumped in like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go to the nations, spread the word, etc. But there's no command to the churches, like in Paul's letters, to share the gospel. Zero. The strongest one that we're going to see is actually next week in the, in the, in the second half of the first chapter of Philippians. But there's no command for us to communicate the gospel. But there are several strong passages that give us an indication that if we are living lives worthy of the gospel, that we're going to be asked about the gospel. Always be ready to have a defense for the joy that you have. Always be ready to answer the questions that come up with wisdom. All right, so you know you're going to be asked these questions. And you know that the world is not going to be in the same place that you are in regard to the answer of those questions. Whether it's on moral issues, whether it's on the person and identity of Jesus Christ, whether he's God or not, a whole host of things. We are not going to be in agreement with a lot of people in the world. That's why Paul says, you have been partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense defense and confirmation of the gospel and so to be a partner with those who are advancing the gospel to be a partner with jesus and the holy spirit as they advance the gospel 
we are going to have to be partakers of grace in the defense of and confirmation of the gospel and maybe even in imprisonment thankfully that is not the case in our country but i have many friends in india and throughout the world that that have been in prison or who have family members or friends who have been in prison for the defense and confirmation of the gospel and there's an assumption there's an assumption that we have to have if we are going to follow Jesus Christ and if we're going to participate in the mission of the gospel and in the advancement of the gospel there's an assumption that we have to have that it is going to take us into uncomfortable places that will likely mean suffering and relationship breakdown it is an assumption that we have to have and so um, when we when we think about following Jesus in his mission that we all are called to all right this is not something that just the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers are called to the entire church is called to the progress of the gospel our lives are defenses of the gospel the gospel's power Jesus's power is manifested in all of our lives all of our lives how we live out our life in the world that because that is the witness of the gospel and as that life is shown and that light is shown people are going to ask us about Jesus Christ we are all called to be ministers and speakers and preachers of the gospel in the world that we're in so we are all called to this mission and we are going to find opposition to that and that is going to create some discomfort it is going to create feelings like you know, I'm not sure I want to be a partner in this mission because of the effect that it's going to have on the people around me and my relationship with them. And that's what was happening in the Philippian church. You don't get a lot of, you don't, you don't see it boldly addressed in this first passage. This first passage is full of a lot of very positive things. But there is, there are hints that there is some disunity there are hints that there are some problems and and that it's affecting their ability to be one-minded with paul in the progress of the gospel and so there's wavering in the philippian church and that's what this letter is called to address and so the first thing i want to bring up as we look at uh this this uh this passage and if you could uh, slide back to the passage there aaron uh, appreciate it yeah so um, as you work through this introduction there are a few really unique things about the introduction to the book of Philippians that I want to point out that are significant as we go forward to understanding this letter the first thing is is Paul's use of the term all all to all the saints who are at Philippi um, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, in every prayer of mine for you all. It's repeated a number of times. There is no introduction in the Bible like it, where it uses this word all. And what he's, what he's wanting the readers to comprehend here at the very beginning of this letter 
is that this letter is written to every single individual member of the church. All the letters were like that, really, except unless they were like directed to Titus or to Timothy, specific individuals, Philemon. But, and so all the letters are written this way, but Paul is wanting to emphasize, this is for every single one of you, church, saints in the church of Philippi, every single one of you. Now, while there is no introduction like this, there are, there are two other letters that have this emphasis on this word all at the beginning or somewhere throughout the letter, and it is in those letters to the Corinthians where a great degree of division existed. And we don't see the level of, of disagreement and conflict in Philippi that we see in Corinth. We're going to see where it is in Philippi. But he seems to emphasize this word all when he's addressing churches that are not unified, they're not all on the same page in regard to who they are and what Christ has called them to be. The second thing that's really unique about this introduction is that it is the only letter that addresses the elders and the deacons. So it's the elders, the deacons, and all of you. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why that may be. But it seems, again, to be a strong emphasis on the fact that he is wanting the leadership, the elders, the deacons, so the first tier of leadership, the second tier of leadership, and then every single individual in the church to be very attentive to what comes after this introduction because it's for everybody. Okay, It's not something that just the, the leaders are going to read and take care of the problem here and there. It is for everybody. It is for everybody. So we have some hint that something is going on in the Philippian church that Paul is wanting to address in a, in a very serious way and for every single member of the church to comprehend. And, and it's similar only in, to the letters to the church in Corinth in their, in their approach and the suspicion that some conflict and disunity might be behind it. Now, the other thing about this letter, this introduction, so this is just, again, this is just an introduction to a letter, is that he is expressing a great deal of affection for them. Now, that's common in the other letters as well to to thank God and and give grant them grace and peace except for the Galatians he's right in Galatians he just starts right out what fools you are but other than that we find positive but Philippians is even more positive he thanks God for them he has joyful prayers for them he says that he yearns for them and then he tells them something that uh, it is intended, intended to strengthen their, their sense of confidence and their, their, their joy. He says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident of this. Now, this is a, a, a passage that's often used as a general encouragement for discouraged saints. Okay, they may be discouraged about their, their maturity. They may be discouraged about their progress. They may think that God is going to give up on them because of their failures. And so this, is, this passage is often used 
um, as, a, as, a, as an encouragement to kind of dejected saints. What Paul is using it for is, is an affirmation that even in their current state of, of disunity, like you don't, you don't write a letter urging unity unless there's a problem with it. So even in light of their current conflicts, whatever they might be, and we don't know what they are yet, we're going to see what they are as we go through the letter, even with some of the inner turmoil, all right, and, and I'm sure that some of you, I'm sure some of you have been a part of churches where there's conflict, where there may be troubles in leadership or disagreements in leadership, or there's some moral issues going on, and they don't, be, they don't seem to be getting addressed, or you know, all of us who grew up in the church have been a part of churches where at times you were doubting. Do these, do these leaders have any idea what they're doing? Is Jesus giving up on us as a church? Who are we as a church? We have no sense of direction and where we're going or anything like this. So those kinds of stirrings and, and grumblings exist in churches when there are problems, right? But he says this, I want you to be confident because I'm confident that Christ will finish his work in you you will come to maturity and completion as a church not just as individuals but as a church god will have his work in you completed but then he says something that you have to understand is a condition on this this is not just a promise that you can make to any believer he says i i feel this way about you and it is right for me to feel this way about you because you have been partakers with me you have been partners with me from the first day until now so what does that mean that means that they have been a support of paul they have been a partner with paul they have helped paul they have sacrificed for paul and when you sacrifice and support and help paul you are helping the work that the holy spirit is doing to take the gospel to the nations and we know from the story in the book of acts the woman lydia the first time Paul preached the gospel in the city of Philippi, the woman Lydia responded, and what'd she do? I want you guys to come and stay with me in my house. You can use my house for your base of ministry into the city of Philippi. And so from the first day until now, the, the, the Philippians have supported Paul. So they were not just any church. They were a church that was committed to Paul, and committed to the progress of the gospel. Lydia was a businesswoman, probably widowed, but she had a household, she had her own business, she was wealthy. What did she use all of those things for? Ultimately, the progress of the gospel. So we oftentimes find ourselves in places where we are committed to Christ, we are supporting the work of the ministry, uh, we are striving to be a witness for him in the world, we are striving to raise our kids in the, in the Lord. Whatever. We, we're doing things that we know we should be doing. But yet there's always struggles, right? There's always challenges. There are relational dynamics that are, that are problematic. We are in conflict with people, maybe in our families, maybe in the church. And so we always have these simultaneous things going on where nothing is ever ideal or perfect, but yet we remain committed to the progress of the gospel. We remain to the, committed to the purposes of Christ. And so Paul is saying, listen, I know that there's current challenges in your church, 
Do not let these things distract you from the progress of the gospel. I know Christ will finish his work in you. Hang in there. Remain committed. Keep doing what you're doing, but you can still grow. You can overcome these things. And that's why the letter's written, to overcome these things. Because he then leads, leaves the, the introduction with a reflection on his prayer. If you can go to the next slide, I'd like to see it here. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so you get a sense that Paul has a, a deep affection in relationship with his church. They have been full supporters of his from the day one he stepped into the city of Philippi and began to preach the gospel. But they're having some challenges. There's something interrupting their disunity. And we still don't know what it is. But he leaves the introduction with a prayer. He first says that I pray that your love would abound more and more. So they're loving, they're committed, they're sacrificial, but it's incomplete. It could grow. Now, what does it mean, and I'm going to cheat a little bit, what does it mean to love from his perspective? And so in chapter 2, we're going to see that clarified. We're going to give some more time to it when we're there. But it is the absence of selfish ambition. And if you look into the, to the original language and kind of get... Um, into the nuances of what this phrase means. Selfish ambition is, is actually um, an ambition to achieve and to acquire based on rivalry. So selfish ambition is not just being selfish and pursuing life on your own. It is looking out into the world around you and, and seeing a world that, that you want to beat, that you want to conquer, that you want to become somebody in, that you want to move past your contemporaries in. It's, it's, I wanna, it's not just I want to be great, it's I want to be better than them. And so you begin to live your life with this with approach towards life that is just there so that you can come out on top compared to those around you. That's what selfish ambition is, and that can direct our lives. It also can be conceit, where you think too highly of yourself. You know, it's, it's a challenge when you're sitting there in those kinds of conversations. Now, they didn't, they never, they never, we never crossed the line in terms of the conversations that night, which would have been fine. It's just like, I was thinking, okay, do these people have two to three hours to sit and discuss my perspective on biblical sexuality and gender? Um, we didn't, but I was ready for it. And, um, but you know what? To put ourselves into positions of weakness and vulnerability to be made fun of? I mean, Paul went to the stocks. He was put into isolated confinement inside the jails and prisons. It's not too hard for us to think, you know what, I'm, I'm above this. I'm, a, I'm above the ridicule of my neighbors. I'm above being persecuted for what I believe. I'm, I'm above these things. And really what you'd be saying is, is I'm above Jesus. 
And that's why Paul's going to spend such a great deal of time in, Rome, in, in, the ch- in chapter 2 on, on Jesus and what it meant for him, even though being God humbled himself and then God raised him to a, a high position of glory. And so there is a humility that has to come with our commitment to Jesus Christ and, and, a, and a setting aside of these ideas that we're, that we're too good for the ridicule and scorn that could come. And it means that the interests of others are, are, as, as, are, the interests of others are as important as your own. That's what it means to love. And ultimately, it's to being, it's to being like Jesus. And so this, this passage, this prayer is really about choices that we make. And he's, he's, he's praying that God would give the Philippian church the, the, the resources to make choices that would keep them in the progress of the gospel and as a partner with him instead of seeing them divert away. And so we make choices about everything. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, the relationships we have, everything that we choose to make, that we make choices about. It could be out of selfish ambition. It could be out of vain conceit. It could be for our own interests and not for the interests of others. So he's saying, I want your love to abound more and more. And then he says, he, then he, then he um, clarifies it. With knowledge. Love with knowledge. So our world confuses love into um, an emotion. And love will affect the emotions, but love is not defined by emotion. It's not defined by sentiment. Love is something that, that we engage in as an action. Jesus defines love as, as sacrifice. Love always requires a sacrifice. You put the needs of others ahead of your own. Or at least, as we're going to see here in Philippians, do not think only of your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Christ acknowledges that we have our own needs, and we have our own interests, and we have to take care of ourselves. But if we're consumed by ourselves, it's not love. We need to look after others' interests as well as our own. So it's, it's a knowledge. It's an, it's, a, it's an active approach towards life based upon knowledge. And and we think of love differently in our world. I, I'll never forget this conversation that I had with a friend of mine in high school. She was a junior, I was a senior, and we were talking about love, and she was a believer. And we were talking about love and, and sex, and she says, I just don't understand why two people that love each other but aren't married can't have sex with each other. And I told her, I said, well, because that's not love. You, your knowledge of what love is is not accurate. Jesus does not define love that way. What you are experiencing is lust. It feels like love because it's a strong, emotional, positive, desirous feeling, but it is a destructive feeling that brings heartache and shame and vulnerability and a whole host of other problems. So love has to be defined by knowledge. It's not just a sentiment. Sometimes in our doing of good, and there's, and there's, 
more and more books written about this. There has been a whole history of loving sentimental efforts from the West towards the developing world in the giving of aid, in the giving of money, in the giving of food. And what they have found is a lot of those efforts of love have been disastrous because the dictators steal the food and the money that's been given and then they sell it to people and make more money to fund their wars. All right, so good feelings and sentiment do not equal love. And so Paul says, I want you to have a love that abounds more and more, a growing experience of love that is informed by knowledge as well as discernment. And, the dis- and discernment is having the capacity to understand the true nature of something. It's understanding. It's wisdom. It's, it's skillfulness in making choices. And that's one of the reasons why we did our s- summer series on gender, sexuality, and identity is because these are confusing subjects in the world that require knowledge that have a whole host of emotions behind them, emotions that feel like love, emotions that in some ways are love, a lot of intimate issues and concerns. So there needs to be knowledge, but with that knowledge, we need to have the the skill sets to think through them and make choices wisely. And so he's praying that you would have Love that abounds more and more with knowledge, so an awareness and a clear understanding of all of the issues, and then the skillfulness and decision-making to, 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 to proceed. So that you may approve what is excellent. Excellent here being, Paul has the best outcomes in mind for the Philippian church. We want the best outcomes. Outcomes that are going to yield life and beauty and magnificence, and glory, and a clear conscience, freedom. These are the outcomes, same ideas as in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says that Christ did his work in order to bring us to being a place of blamelessness and above reproach and holiness, or to put it in more contemporary terms, distinct, beautiful, and free. Those are the excellent outcomes that Christ desires because if we follow the, de- the, the deceptive teachings of the world in terms of what love is and what good relationships are and what it means to live wisely, we're going to end up bringing misery and destruction not only to ourselves but to those around us. And then he finishes off the prayer by saying, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And I can't overstate the importance that having a view to that day is for the living out of our Christian lives. We taught on Revelation a few years ago, and I think the subtitle was Living with the End in Mind. You can see here in this prayer that it is it is the, the, the thought of seeing Jesus Christ and standing before him is, is something that, has, that never leaves Paul's mind. It is, it is something that should never leave our minds. For some reason, for some reason, impressed on me early in my college years was this, was this idea and conception, and I have very vivid images around it, and I, and I think it, it came out of a study 
that I did my freshman year. Um, this, this, I, had, I, I had a roommate my freshman year. Uh, my, he's my sophomore year of college. Anyway, I had a very close friend who led this Bible study that he invited me into. And he and his wife were actually up last night. First time that they've been up here to visit us in, since we've been up here. Um, had dinner with him, but it was br- brought back a lot of memories. But he led this Bible study, and it was a passage out of, I think, 1 Corinthians, where, talk, where Paul talks about us standing before God. And, and, and he used the metaphor of a house. And we are all like a house. And we have a foundation. The foundation is Jesus. We all have that foundation is Jesus. Now, what we build on that foundation can take two forms. We can build a house that is made out of gold and silver and precious gems and metals. All right? We would say glass and steel. <laughs> or we can have a house made out of wood and straw and hay and he says if you come to christ at the end of the days you are going to stand in judgment we all have to stand before jesus and give an accounting for how we have lived our lives as christians and jesus is either going to see a house built out of glass and steel or he's going to see a house built out of wood and he is going to unleash the fire the glass and the steel are going to make it the wood is not and paul says i long for you to be a house made out of glass and steel rather than a house made out of wood that gets burned up you'll have your foundation but you're going to enter into the kingdom with nothing to show for it now for some reason that image was burned into my brain early on in my walk with jesus And the thought of standing before Jesus with shame is petrifying to me. Because that is going to be the only day that matters, (laughs) that moment, standing before Jesus Christ. And he says, I long that you would be able to stand before Jesus Christ blameless. Blameless. John, in his first letter, his first epistle, he says um, that we, 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 we want, I'm writing so that you would be able to stand before Christ confident and without shame. And that's really where we want to be. That's really wanna, where we want to be. Um, which will then show a life of fruitfulness. Okay? A house that can stand under the judgment of Jesus. Lives that are affected. So as we continue on in our mission to advance the gospel, yes, indeed, we're going to put ourselves in vulnerable situations that are going to be hard. But we're also going to see fruit come out of that. We're going to see people come to know Jesus Christ. We're going to see Christians deepen in their walk. We're going to see those who fear God but don't have a knowledge of who or what he is completely come to know him in a more full way and walk with him. And that's going to be fruit. And so it may be a tough life that we live, but we're going to be encouraged by the fruitfulness that God brings into our lives as a result. And so this is a tall order. This is a great prayer. It's a very encouraging introduction. But if you look, as we've looked at the details of what he's, of what he's praying for, it's a tall order. And the fact that it's couched into a prayer is of great help to us. Because he's not telling them 
I want you to be more loving. He's not telling them that, that he wants them to be more discerning or to have more knowledge. He's not telling them those things yet. He will, but he's not telling them that yet. Just as in Colossians and in, Philippi, and in, and in Ephesians. He starts off with a prayer and then he gives them the commands. So, here's how I interpret that. Paul's got to deal with something with us as a church. Because we've got, we're not completely unified, we're not completely loving. He's heard of these squabblings and conflicts. We, our support has, has, has dropped. And he's going to mention that in chapter 4. You guys stopped helping me. What happened? So, something's going on. Now Paul's addressing it, but he's not just coming at them from the standpoint of, you guys need to correct this, 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 and this, and this. Which is most, like, you know, those of you that are parents, we come, we see our kids doing something, we just start, boom, here's what you need to do, da, 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 da. How often do we come to say, hey, kids, here's how I'm praying for you. We don't do that very often, do we? But that's what Paul does. Here's how I'm praying for you. Which means that He's, he's putting forth an example for us. So the application today of this is not, hey, we've got to become more loving or we've got to become more discerning or more knowledgeable. It's, hey, in, in the midst of, of God through the letter to the Philippians pushing us to a new place, pushing us to a greater participation with him in his mission, pushing us to a bolder witness of the gospel in this world. Let's start off with prayer. Let's start off with prayer. I want to be honest with you all. I pray this prayer for this church on a daily basis and have for the 11 years we've been here. This exact prayer, as well as the other prayers of Paul and Jesus, specifically. And I think it's time for us as a church to, to manifest the things that Paul is wanting to see happen here as a result of writing this letter. But let's pray this prayer together as a church throughout this series. Let's pray this prayer for ourselves as individuals and for our families. Specifically, that our love would grow with discernment and with knowledge so that we would abound in fruit and be pure and blameless when Jesus returns. Because he needs to do this work in us. He's going to throw us, he's going to give us his word. He's going to call us to encourage and strengthen and admonish one another. But he's got to do this work and we need to go before him in that place of asking him to do it. Let me pray. God, indeed, as Paul has prayed through the Holy Spirit for these things, we pray these things as well that we would that we would abound in love. There's nothing greater that we would enjoy than abound in love so that the people in our lives can truly experience life because of, of, of how we live and love toward them. And God, that we could have knowledge and discernment to face the tough challenges that we have in our world and the conflicts that we face with each other. So that, God, we could have an abundant amount of fruit in the midst of the challenges that come and the suffering that comes and be able to stand before you upon your return. That is what we long for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.